The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles and turn, if you would, to the book of Luke today. Uh, we're going to take a two-week departure from Ephesians with the holiday season being upon us. So uh, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 19, that'd be great while you're doing that. Um, also, if you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high, wave it around as if nothing's really bothering you, and uh, they will make sure that you get one of those. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you. We pray that that would just be something the Lord uses to uh, allow you to grow in his grace and teach you more and more about how good he is. Um, I have a couple of announcements. First of all, one that's not on our, uh, our little list here, slide fellas, if you want to wait. Um, I, I made a big error. Is Mike Robinson here? There's Mike. I made a huge error last week. Um, there was an announcement I was supposed to give that because of an error on my part didn't end up on our announcement sheet. And uh, when I'm up here reading announcements, if it's not on the list, I will never remember to speak of it. And the problem is, is that they just this week had an event hosted here um, that was a, an opportunity for people to learn and discover about some of the education opportunities that are out there in Christian education, even in our area, whether that be Pacific. Bible College, which Mike Robinson, one of our elders here at the church, is president of here in this valley. Or schools like uh, Multnomah, there's Western Seminary in Portland, there's Corbin. Um, there are a lot of really good schools, really good places to learn, not just biblical education, but, but education as a whole, um, but from a biblical worldview as well. And uh, we, they had an event here for you to be able to learn about that, and I did not announce it. So first, Mike, I sincerely apologize for that, man. I, I made a huge mistake on that. But here, here's what I'd like to say. Um, if you are interested, especially young people, as you're looking on where you're going to go to school next year or in the next couple of years. Um, if you would like some information about that, just get a hold of me and I'll connect you with Mike and the guys there and, and they can show you some of the educational opportunities, some really good top-notch schools um, that are available to you or to your children that are out there. And then second of all, not just in going to college in general, but if you're here and you're, you're interested in just going a little bit deeper in, in learning the scriptures, and I don't mean just from a Bible study in general way, but, but literally digging from a scholar scholarly, let's say, angle to learning more about scripture. Um, we are blessed. Pacific Bible College here in our valley is a great, great resource that is way cheaper than seminary. Trust me, I know this. Um, and, and also taught by some amazing teachers um, here. So if you would be interested in doing that, there are night classes and there's all kinds of opportunities for you to be able to, to go deeper and learn. Um, you can get a hold of me or if you know Mike or if you see Mike over here, you can grab him or just email us here at the church and we'll connect the two of you. Um, but those are incredible resources that we don't want to withhold from you. And Mike, hopefully we can make that up here in the near future. Man, I really apologize about that. I was excited to do that and I, I blew it. So forgive me. We're good. Just a little bit today. Anyway, so um, another couple of announcements. Um, make sure if you didn't get one of these, make sure you look for the Heritage Upcoming Events flyer that they should have been handing out as you came in. There is a ton of things going on that are uh, you might want to be a part of, ways to get plugged in, stuff going on here at the church. Um, along that line, a couple of things I do want to highlight. First of all, membership reminder. If you would like to join us in covenant membership here at Heritage, um, there is still opportunity to do that without having to take the Heritage Basics class um, that 
we'll be uh, doing in another month or so. Um, the teaching we did on January 24th suffi- suffices as that Heritage Basics class. So uh, there's still opportunity to do that without having to go do the class. Uh, and I think it's two weeks we have left before that cutoff will sort of happen. And then we will uh, um, just direct you to that membership class. Um, but it's a great opportunity. But, but let me say one thing. There were a couple of people asking about it that maybe weren't here in January or missed that teaching. And they were like, first of all, they were like, we have membership? Weird. And second of all, they were like, why? And especially if you got that membership document and you only read that and you were like, this is the Heritage Membership Program, as important and as true as everything in there is, the heart behind why there is such a thing as covenant membership here at Heritage um, isn't, you, you cannot adequately get that up across in an application document. So, so let me encourage you, if you haven't done it, please go back on our website and listen to the teaching on January 24th. It's called um, A Healthy Church Has Healthy Members or Get a Hold of Us. And me or one of the other pastors would love to sit down with you, talk about what covenant membership looks like why we're doing that here at a church. It's a pretty major shift. Um, why we're doing that, um, what the benefits are, what if I don't want to join covenant membership. We can go through all of those sorts of things and just really encourage you to do that because the heart of what we're doing and how we're trying to approach this is incredibly important. Um, just like anything, you can see great examples of things that other people have taken and used for horrifying reasons. And membership's one of those things in church culture that has either been used to really care for and, and serve the people that are part of that church, or in other examples, it's been used to dominate, control, and abuse people within the church. And so the heart of what we're doing is really important. So if you missed that, please go back and listen. Um, otherwise, you can get another copy of the application there. It's on our website. We post it on social media, um, all that stuff. We really hope that you'll jump in. Um, we're over 200 now um, uh, covenant members that, it, that have gotten in. And it, by the way, if you sent that in, we know we haven't responded yet. We're just trying to collect them all and respond at once, so hang in there. But we're really excited about how it's being received. Um, but we want to make sure if you have questions about it that we're able to address those as well. So just grab me and uh, would love to grab coffee or, or pull off to the side and we'll, we'll chat about that as well. And then finally, uh, Easter is this week, so uh, this coming week, one week from today. So that means this week, for example, there's no Wednesday night service here at Heritage because we will have our Good Friday service Friday at 6.30 here at Heritage. This is my favorite service of the year, I should say. If you haven't been able to join us before, then this is a powerful time to just really consider and meditate what Christ did for us on the cross, to have communion together and, and, and just really worship and, and think about what the the Lord did for us um, in his amazing sacrifice. This is my favorite service of the year. Um, So I really encourage you to join us Friday night at 6.30. TiVo the basketball games, I will. Uh, We'll hang out and watch them together, I don't care. But uh, make sure you come join us for that. Um, And then also, um, we need lots of volunteers to pull off the Easter service. The Easter service, we will have well over a thousand people here next, uh, next Sunday for our service. And uh, we have a lot of people, um, we call them CEOs sometime, Christmas, Easter only. They come to church only, Christmas, Easter only, right? So, so here's the thing, we can joke about that today and laugh because they're not here yet because it's not Christmas or Easter. <laughs> but here's the thing, what a great, op- I mean, they're here, let's serve them. 
Let's love them. Let's preach the gospel to them. Let's, let's show them the kind of community that we are trying to build here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. So we need a lot of people involved with a lot of smiles on their faces. Um, we're going to be doing everything from free coffee and, and helping people park, helping people get their kids to the kids wing. There's a barbecue afterwards that's free, all kinds of stuff like that that we want to do. We have baptisms going on. There is a lot going on on Easter, and so we need help. So please stop by that table in the hallway, about midway down the hallway on the way out and uh, sign up to help us in one of those areas. And if you would like to get baptized, please, if you would, you should have got one of these too, I think. Did everybody get one of these? Were they handing this out? Yeah. If they didn't, just grab one at the info table as well. But um, this is just a thing for you to fill out just your name, phone number, and some contact, you know, other contact info so that we can touch base with you this week and talk to you about baptism and what it looks like and even practical details. Um, we try to meet with as many people before the baptisms on Easter Sunday um, so that those who are responding just in the moment will have elders available to meet and pray with them. But it's, it's to make sure that that's not an overwhelming, you know, long line of people praying with and talk because we want to make sure when people get baptized they actually know what they're doing that it means something they understand the reality of what's going on not just getting swept up in some moment on a morning and then going on about the rest of their lives as if it didn't really matter so um if you would if you're interested in baptism if you've never been baptized um, or maybe you got baptized in one of those deals where you got swept up in something but it didn't really mean anything and, and now you're walking with the Lord and you're like, man, I need to give, I need to do this. Then fill this out and myself or one of the pastors here at the church will get a hold of you this week and we'll, we will uh, chat. Um, is that all? It's going to be all. So uh, if you would, turn to Luke 19. Next week I'll apologize to who I forgot this week and we'll be fine. <laughs> We're in Luke chapter 19 today. And uh, this has been a, a busy and heavy week of ministry here at Heritage. There's been a lot of things going on. There's a lot of, whether it be illness, hospitalizations, um, surgeries, there's been just a lot of stuff going on. So, so even myself, I'll, I'll just confess to you right now, um, not having nearly as much time as I wish I would have had to prepare for some of these things. Um, it, it's just, there's just been a lot going on, but the beauty is, is that we, we trust in God's grace and in God's Holy Spirit, not in man's power or man's thoughts. So, so what I'd like to do before we even get started on this is just bow our heads in prayer. And, and, and if we would all, as I'm praying verbally, if you you would join me in prayer and let's just ask that God by his spirit would invade this place, that he would just teach us, he would show us, he would move hearts, instruct, correct, comfort, whatever. There are a lot of people needing a lot of different things from the Lord right now. And let's just pray that ministry happens in this room as we open up his word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are our strength. You are our great physician, our comforter our healer, our teacher, our father, our friend, our rock, our foundation. God, you are our hope. You are our joy. You are our comfort in the storm. You are our laughter in difficulty. You are our future and our hope. Lord, you are everything to us. And God, we live in a fallen world where things that we put trust in and things that we depend on and things that we count on are so fragile and they're taken from us so quickly. But God, we are now reminded once again that you will be here with us forever, that you do not turn your back on us, 
That though father and mother may fail, you do not. That you, Lord, are with us always. And so, God, we're thankful for that truth, that that means that you're here with us this morning, that your spirit is in this place as we've gathered together. And so we pray, God, that your spirit would teach us this morning, that you would comfort those in difficulty, correct those in sin, that, Lord, you would guide those in doubt, you would alleviate fears, you would direct, and that, Lord, you would just enlighten us to a greater degree of your reality, how amazing, how good, how powerful, and how gracious you are. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, today is Palm Sunday. If you're new to church, Palm Sunday is the day uh, that is usually set aside to kind of celebrate and commemorate the very story that we're going to be looking at today in the book of Luke. It's the story of Jesus's entrance into um, the city of Jerusalem right before his crucifixion. It's referred to as the triumphant entry, which is a little bit of a paradoxical name considering the fact that he's going to be killed within a week. Um, But we'll get to that in just a little bit. It. Um, I had the opportunity to take a group of us about, uh, well, it's almost two years now. We got a chance to go to Israel. And one of the things that still to this day sticks out to me the most was being able to go there, not just see the sights of things that, that went on, but seeing this particular place um, specifically was, was kind of a powerful thing. It was our first day coming into the city of Jerusalem. It was my first experience with Jerusalem ever in my life. And the first place we came to was the Mount of Olives where we walked down together through the Garden of Gethsemane to the place where Jesus would have done what we're going to look at today. The, this story that happened actually happened. There's a quote in here at one point where it talks about even the rocks would cry out. And so as we were there, a bunch of us actually got stones from the hillside as we were there in Jerusalem and brought them home with us and said, these are our singing rocks. Uh, These are the ones that would have sang if people had not sang for Christ in that day. It's a real thing in a real place that happened. And and I brought some pictures back from there that I'd like to show you just to help you have a little bit of context on what's going on. This is a picture, it's kind of hard to see in here, isn't it? But this is a picture of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, this photo was taken from the Mount of Olives. Now, a lot of times when we read biblical stories and we think, oh, they're going from this place to this place, we have this, uh, um, especially because of the way of our, our country is set out and especially the way the West Coast is laid out, there's a lot of travel time from one place to another. You understand? Um, on the East Coast, that's a little bit less. You can drive for just a couple of hours and go through three, four states in different areas. But in Israel, it's really compacted. So when you look at stories about some of these cities like Bethany and the Mount of Olives and the Kidron Valley and these different areas, um, for us to think in terms of these cities and locales, it's actually a little more helpful to think in terms of neighborhoods because it's small and it's close together. So for example, in this story, we're standing on top of the Mount of Olives and this valley right here, this is the Kidron Valley. It's basically a ditch between two hills. And the city of Jerusalem is built on top of it. So we came into the city. um, We got dropped off here on top of the Mount of Olives. And and again, West Coast mountain. Israel eh, is more of a hill. 
So we're on the Mount of Olives, and then we, we walked our way down, um, down the road, this windy road that goes between the cemetery there and the Garden of Gethsemane, and you go across the valley, and then it goes back up to the city, to, to this city. Now, this is the old city wall here in Jerusalem. If you notice this little outcropping that kind of sticks up a little bit, this is the Golden Gate or the Eastern Gate in the city of Jerusalem. Now, the old wall had the, this went around the entire city and it had these gates that when you came into the city, you would go through them. Now, it, it's a little bit weird, though, to look at this one because you go, okay, it's a gate, but it looks pretty solid to me. Could you show the next photo? Um, this is one of the other gates here in the city. And as you can see, there's a big door. You walk through this, but that's not what the eastern gate looks like today. The last photo, if you would. This is the eastern gate. And as you notice, it's closed. It's been sealed up. And this was a, a really awesome thing to think through as we were there that helps us understand the reality of what went on this day so many years ago and the dependability of the scriptures. Because, for example, this gate was opened, and prophetically speaking, in the book of Ezekiel, there's a story that's told, a prophecy that's told that says the Messiah would one day enter through that gate when he returns to reestablish his kingdom on earth and make all things new. And so the people of Israel, the rabbis, they all had this hope, this dream within them that one day our Messiah is going to come. The king that's going to liberate us, one day he's going to come through. But as you know, Israel's been a troubled place to say the least, correct? So in the 1500s, during the Ottoman Empire, when the Turks invaded Israel, they were interacting with some of the rabbis there, and they began to hear these stories that said that this Messiah, this conquering king, would come through the gate and would establish his throne forever and would, um, would, would reestablish Israel and the kingdom there. Well, since they invaded, they're not exactly for that, right? They're like, okay, so if this conquering king's coming, we need to learn about this. And he's going to come through that gate? And they're like, yep, he's going to come through that gate. And they're like, okay, seal it up. If we get rid of the door, he can't come through the gate. Your prophecy can't come true. Problem solved. And then years later, the Muslims, when the Muslims were there and they built the Dome of the Rock Mosque, which you saw on top with the Golden Dome, um, they heard the same prophecies, and knowing that an Israeli rabbi is forbidden to have contact with dead bodies, that's considered making them unclean. Well, this Messiah coming through, we, I, here's another way to stop him. And so they actually built a cemetery right outside the gate. That'll stop him. That'll stop him. I mean, forget the fact we're talking about the king of the world. We'll just put some concrete up. That'll stop him, right? Whatever. And then second of all, plus we'll put this cemetery here because then he can't walk through a cemetery to get in. But if you're Jesus Christ and you're going to raise the dead when you return, it's not exactly a problem, is it? And so the prophecy said, here's the interesting thing. Even those who try to stop the biblical prophecies that are there from coming true, have many times throughout history only served to further their accomplishment. Because the book of Ezekiel also talks about the fact that this gate, by the way, before that Messiah comes, it would be sealed up. And it would never be opened again until the day that that Messiah comes. Historically, there's been at least one time when we came really close during the war with, against, the, um, against the Turks, there was this big battle. Was it the Turks? I don't remember who it was. Mike knows. Who was Allenby fighting? Yeah. 
The Ottoman Empire, yeah. So, so when General Allenby, who, who was a Christian man himself, the, the Ottoman Empire had taken over the city of Jerusalem and they're all kind of sealed up in there. And the army, Allenby's army, came and surrounded the city of Jerusalem and their intent was to try to take them over. But Allenby was a Christian. And Allenby had a real desire to not cause damage to some of these really important historical uh, buildings and artifacts, the Temple Mount, the wall, all of these kind of things. But they had a battle to fight. He had orders he had been given. And his responsibility was to come in and take these guys on and wipe them out. So literally, the, the history books tell us that the city was surrounded. And at that gate in particular, they literally had tanks and guns aimed at the gate with the absolute intent of blowing that gate open so that they could come in and take care of them. But Allenby was like, man, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to destroy all these artifacts. So, so what can we do? So he put the attack off for a full day. He prayed that night, according to the story, and, and he wrote a letter. And in that particular letter, they, they wrote these leaflets. And on the leaflets, it said, surrender the city today, signed General Allenby. They loaded this paper up in biplanes and they flew this over the city. And you're talking about people who maybe had never even seen airplanes before at that time. And they dropped thousands of these leaflets on the city trying to encourage the people there to surrender. Well, the people inside saw the letters when they got there and where it said sincerely Allenby, not speaking the language, they mistook it to say Allah and they surrendered. And so Allenby never had to blow open the door of the place. So you can see like there's this prophecy, Christ is gonna come through this gate. This is where it's going to happen and history itself continues to play out the dependability of the scriptures. The story we're gonna look at today is a real story in a real place about a real man named Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, we turn to the book of Luke chapter 19. You can bring the lights back up guys. Luke 19, verse 28 is where we'll start. And it says this. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he, knew, he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? You say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus upon it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks onto the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, and he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, real story, real place, real events that happen. And because it was a real story and a real events, um, it is helpful often to understand some of the cultural climate of what's going on, to understand some of the context of this story and how it plays out because these events don't happen singularly in a vacuum. And in particular, in Israel during this time, there was a cultural issue that was going on that we can relate to really well. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, is not its own. I mean, it's, it's, it's there, and religiously it's governing, but it's under the oppressive thumb of Rome. It's under the leadership and uh, oversight of Herod, a man who was a, an evil, disgusting man, who, who not a Jewish person. I mean, the, the people themselves were not their own. They were in exile within their own land. And they were desperately waiting for the day when someone, this Messiah, would come. When we talk about these prophecies about the Messiah that we'd come one day, you need to understand that in Israel today, but especially even in that particular day, there was this overwhelming sense of we need Messiah to come now. Somebody needs to come and fix all of this that's going on around us. Sound familiar? I mean, even right now in our own political system, what, in our own, this political race that we're in right now, what are the things that you're hearing all the time? Uh, Donald Trump, make America what? Great again. I mean, that has ignited a fervor in a lot of people who feel like there's a lot of things wrong. We need the kingdom, if you will, that we had before. We need to make this country great the way it used to be. Well, that's exactly the way the people were here in Israel. They were longing for the days of David, the days when king, the kingdom of Israel was the kingdom, when there was a king, when they ruled, when things were exactly the way they felt it was supposed to be. And so there was this fervor within the people just going, we just need someone to come to get rid of our enemies, to take the leadership that's there and wipe it out and to put things back the way they're supposed to be. This is a really common desire, not just in America in 2016, and not just in, in Israel here, but throughout history, there have been stories in all cultures of, we need someone to come fix what's wrong. In, in fact, that fact right there is one of the reasons that a lot of people who are opposed to the scriptures try to discount the Bible and say that it's not true. What they say is, hey, Christianity, this whole Messiah thing that's coming, you're just copying something that's been part of every culture for as long as we can remember. This isn't some unique story. Jesus is going to come and he's going to establish his kingdom and make everything great again. You guys are falling into the same myths the same beliefs, the same desires that every other culture before them has had. Now they're right in the sense that the Bible and Christianity is not the only story out there that is waiting for this one to come who's going to save us and make everything the way it's supposed to be. They're absolutely right. But they're absolutely wrong in thinking that Christianity is copycatting other faiths into this. In, in fact, there's a reason why every other culture has that sort of mentality, that belief, that hope. There's a reason why no matter where you are in history, you can always find groups of people that are, we need our Savior to come and fix what's wrong. 
And it's because that desire, that expectation for a leader who's going to come and take care of everything, it's what Tim Keller refers to as a memory trace. See, the Bible tells us that at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, that we lived in perfect communion by we, I mean Adam and Eve. They didn't get much further than that in a civilization before everything fell apart. But Adam and Eve lived in perfect fellowship and communion with God. God was the king. God was the ruler, the creator who had established the rules. He was the one Adam and Eve would come to for guidance, for, for knowledge, for understanding. Like he was ruling on the throne of the earth and everything was perfect exactly the way it was supposed to be. And it lasted for two whole chapters. And then in Genesis 3, you know everything fell. Instead of submitting to God's leadership, Man fell to the lies of Satan who said, you can be your own God. You can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You don't have to go to God for this stuff anymore. In fact, he's holding out on you. He's separated himself from you and and you don't need to go to him. You can eat and learn him yourself. If you eat of this, he says, you will be like God. And so man bought it. God was, if you will, removed from the throne of man's hearts. But man was always designed to be ruled by God. Well, when God was removed from the throne, man was put in it, we know that literally all hell broke loose. Death entered into the scene. There was affliction, there was turmoil. All of creation fell from thorns where there didn't used to be thorns to animosity between creature and man and rebellion between man and man and man against God. Everything fell apart, but even then, There was this promise all the way at the beginning in Genesis chapter three about this hero who would come and put everything back together again. It's in Genesis three, verse 15, and it says this. We have a slide of the text. Speaking to the serpent that had had deceived Eve, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In, in this, what God is saying, he's talking to Satan and he's saying, there's one that's going to come. The fruit of this woman. There's someone that's going to come through the lineage of this woman and it's going to be the hero that is going to put everything back together. His foot is going to crush you and everything is going to be reestablished and put back together the way it's supposed to be. And all civilizations from the, from the beginning of time, they, they all have stories because we all intrinsically know something's broken We are designed to be ruled and led by a good leader. And so there's even something in our creativity, in our writings that longs for the day that that leader comes and makes everything right. And it's in all sorts of forms of history, writing. One of the most well-known in our uh, English-speaking language is King Arthur. King Arthur, the legendary king. Do, Do you know, according to legend, his tombstone, wherever that may be, was engraved, and I cannot pronounce this, um, but that's never stopped me from trying before. Um, it's Rex Quondam Rexca Future Us. That's good Latin, in case you're wondering. <laughs> but you know what that translates? The once and future king. This belief that the ruler is, he's coming back. 
He's gonna reestablish what's been broken. He's going to set the kingdom up the way it's supposed to be. He's gonna fix everything. This has been ingrained into even the human psyche in a way that most people aren't even aware because it's a memory trace for the day that we desire to be led by the good king, by God himself, that we were created for that and that when that was broken, there's something missing in the hearts of everyone. We all long to be ruled and to be ruled well. Now, not us, right? Except for America. Because we don't do kings in America, right? I mean, that's what America is all about. We, we kick kings out. We don't want anything to do with kings. We, we are more modern than that. But let's, let's use the words of C.S. Lewis. Let me introduce to you a quote C.S. Lewis wrote. He said this, Monarchy is easily debunked. The actual record of kings is abysmal, full of tyranny. Yet, where we are forbidden to honor a king, we will honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. Even famous gangsters. For spiritual nature, like physical nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble up poison. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, we were designed for a king. And you go, okay, but we don't want kings because kings are terrible. And okay, then fine. He's right. Monarchs are easily debunked. Even going back to King David, who Israel espouses as like, this is the king we want. His record's terrible. And so if we go, okay, we don't want kings. We don't want that kind of leadership. Democracy, that's where it's at. USA, USA, right? We don't have kings. We don't get ruled like that. You don't. You ever wonder why sports stars have so much influence in our society? I mean, you ever think about that just for a minute? Like, I love sports. This is the most wonderful time of the year in my, in my book because I'm a college football fan. I love sports. But they're just playing a game. They're just throwing a ball through a hoop. They're just dribbling and maybe they win and maybe they don't. And even our, we know this now more than ever with the kind of influence, or I should say with the kind of window into people's lives that we have now, even our greatest sports stars are greatly flawed, are they not? But do we not worship them? Don't we want to get the jersey with their name on it and wear it? Don't we wish we could be like them, play like them? Don't we sing their praises and lift our hands when they do well? How many of you have had a day ruined because your sports team lost? It's just a game. It happens to me all the time. Like if you were just like Jeff, the church crumbles and fails and never exists anymore or Duke beats Carolina, which would you rather have? I'm like, oh man. (sighs) Can I get back to you on that? Could I have a day? You do know. I mean, it's a team that cheers. Let's go devils. Like you can't pull for that. I'm just saying. Anyway, but look, why do we give them that much? Why does a family like the Kardashians have the kind of influence in our society that they do? And, And don't laugh that off. They have massive influence in our culture right now. It's unbelievable how much influence that family has in our culture right now. Why? They're famous for being famous. And yet, there are people, literally, I've seen articles about the influence with that family in particular where young girls write letters to them and they say things like, you've inspired me to want to be famous one day. That happens all the time. 
Why do we take movie stars? You do know movie stars are just playing pretend. That's really all they're doing. The same thing your kids do all the time, that's what they're still doing. And what do we, we turn to them for political advice. Well, he plays pretend for a living. Let's see what Batman has to say about the economy. Like, what? <laughs> like, that's what we do. It's silly. It's ridiculous. And every single one of us does it. We will put someone on the throne that we admire. We will put someone on the throne and say, we want that. I want to be like that. I wish we had that. I wish everyone could be like that. And we will worship it. We will spend our money on it. And we will put everything to it. We'll dress like it. We'll try to uh, mimic it. Why do we do that? It's not just as simple as, oh, it's just idolatry or it's just a hobby. It is a memory trace because every single person on earth was designed to be ruled by a good king. We were all created in the image of that good king king. That's what we're waiting for. Every single one of us is waiting on this good king. And what C.S. Lewis says is if you starve the flesh, if you starve the humanity from that thing that we desperately long for, then we'll fill it with something else. You keep food from someone, sooner or later they'll get hungry enough they'll eat anything. And this is what he's saying. But in this text, There's a man named Jesus who shows up on the scene. And it's not as simple as, I'm gonna get on the back of a donkey and I'll ride into Jerusalem and we'll wave some palm branches. What's happening in this story is Jesus Christ is making a huge declaration. It is an orchestrated event. Did you catch it when we read it? Hey, disciples, here's what we're gonna do. We're about to head into Jerusalem. I need you guys, you're gonna go over here. You're gonna find a donkey. The owner's gonna ask you some questions, but just tell him this and you'll be fine. But bring that colt, the the colt that no one's ever ridden. Don't go get mom, but get the colt and bring that one to me. And this is what we're gonna do. It's been arranged in terms of there are prophecies we could go into that point to the very day that Christ was going to come in. It had to be that day and he knew it. It's Passover week. It's the week when all the people of Israel would bring their lamb that was gonna be their Passover sacrifice. They would bring it into their household. It would become part of their family for that week before it was put forward as the sacrifice. And so here's Jesus Christ coming home to the city of Jerusalem. Will they welcome him in or they reject him? Like everything he's doing is calculated. It is intentional and he's saying, I am the king you've been looking for. Not a king, the king. There's been a lot of a kings from Caesar to Herod to, did you know that this, even Barabbas, think about that. Do you know the name Barabbas? This is the man who Christ would be swapped for on that crucifixion day. Barabbas would be set free. Christ would be crucified. His name Barabbas, bar meaning from, Abbas meaning, well, what what do we say about God? He is our what father? Abba father. His name literally means from the Father. And there are some early manuscripts that list his name as Jesus Barabbas. And the belief is this was one of a long list of people who stepped up to the plate claiming to be the Messiah that was finally gonna deliver Israel from its foes. That he had led a resurrection against the powers that be, murdered people and then was gonna be executed because of what he had done. There's a lot of historians that are discovering things that they believe that that's who we're talking about. And history's full of people who had come and said, I'm the Messiah. So when Christ comes here, he's not just saying, I'm a king, I can help. 
He's specifically saying, I am the king. The thing that people are singing as they're singing to Jesus' name, they're saying, Hosanna. They're, they're quoting Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm written hundreds of years before that is speaking about the Messiah who is going to come and set everything back. So on Palm Sunday, we're not just gathered together to, to celebrate some event where people waved some branches and everything was good. We're here to be reminded that Jesus Christ is the king, not a king. He's the king. And there's things in the text that point some of this out to us that's really important for us, I think, the church. And, and I'll, I'll say this. I'm speaking today, though I want everyone to listen in, and we're going to talk about the gospel, and we want people to understand that. But I'm speaking to the church today. Because Jesus, even coming into the city, is like, man, if you had just been waiting for me. So today, this is the church's service. Next week, there's the CEOs, as we said, will be here. And we'll, we'll deal with that on a different level then. But church, heritage, listen up. He's the king. And no matter what you think you're doing with your life, you are waiting for the king. Everything you're doing is pointing to Jesus. It's a desire for Jesus. It's a want for Jesus. You don't understand it and we fail, but we are looking for the king. And Jesus said on this day, I'm here. I'm here. Are you waiting? Are, are you aware? Do you recognize who I am or have you been blinded to this? And, and so there's a couple of things in the text that I think are worth just considering about his kingship. The first one is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus is... We've kind of been saying already, he's the ultimate king. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. He's not one of uh, the kings. He's the ultimate king. He's the one we are longing for. Romans 14 says this, Romans 14, 11, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And Philippians 2, along the same lines, says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, it's speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The Bible makes it really clear for those that want to go, no, Jesus is a good prophet. Jesus is a good teacher. There's things that we can learn from him and Buddha and Gandhi and all of them. And Jesus is worthy of our attention for those things. No, 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 no. You do not understand. There are people that even say that all this stuff that happened, that Jesus got swept up in things that the people were doing, and that's why he got killed. And they would point to this day as being one of them. He was just coming to Passover, but the crowd just went crazy, and the next thing you know, no, no, no. This is an intentional declaration that Jesus is saying, I am the messianic king above all kings. And no matter, no matter what we're looking for, no matter what king we desire to worship, be it a Kardashian or be it a, a, a Buddha or whatever the case may be, in the end, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. Some more willing than others, but every knee will bow before him. There are so many people that if you talk about Jesus Christ as our friend, as our teacher, and as our savior, they're in. But then when you talk about king, eh, I, I want him to save me, but I don't want him to tell me to do anything. I, I want Jesus to fix all my ills and set everything right, but I don't want him to rule over me and tell me what I can and can't do and what's okay and what's not okay. And so we try to compartmentalize Jesus and Jesus wants to remind us, no, I'm the king. 
I am the king of the universe. Jesus is the one who holds all things together. He is the one through whom all creation exists. He is the son of the most high father. He is the most powerful thing you could ever possibly imagine and then some by infinity. He is the king of kings, Lord of lords and nothing you've ever seen or experienced on earth or any human has ever seen or experienced on earth even scratches the surface of being able to touch who Jesus really is is. And he's saying, I'm the king. Know this. But, but he's saying it with love and mercy in his heart. He's going to weep over the people that miss this. He's saying, don't you understand everything that you're longing for? Don't you understand the things that you allow to be on the throne of your heart? Don't you understand you're looking for me? I am the king. I am your hope. I am the one that will fix everything. I am the one that's going to fix your broken heart, your broken political systems, your broken ecology, all of these things, and no one else comes close. I am the king. He's the ultimate king. Demons shake at the sound of his name. I mean, even when he was showing up there, what was the reaction of demons when they saw him? Is it now? Are are you about to whip us now? He's the king. And now is a good time. It, it, it's good. To, he is our savior. He is our friend. He loves us with a love we can't imagine, but he's also the king and he rules. And we were designed to be ruled, not just to be ruled in general, but to be ruled by Jesus. Amen? He's the ultimate king. Number two, though, he's not just a king who rules, but he's the transformational king. He doesn't just come in and go, this is what I want. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. We're going to get rid of this. None of this, none of this, none of this. But, but he's a king who cares about the heart and soul of the individual that he leads. And he's a transformational king. He changes people. Look what happens right before that. At the beginning of Luke chapter 19, there's Zacchaeus, the wee little man tax collector, one of the most hated men in the entire nation of Israel. And Jesus goes to his house because he loves him and he wants to change his heart. He goes into the house of a man who's ripping people off. He walks out of the house of a man who is paying back fourfold anything he ever took and doing whatever he can to get rid of all the riches that he's been pursuing his whole life because now he understands what's really valuable. And his heart has changed. Christ doesn't just rule. He doesn't just boss around. But he desires to get into the heart of us as people and to grow. For I mean, think about it. His whole purpose in coming into Israel on this day is to die for the sake of the people, not to just rule. He could have just come back and ruled. He could have just come back and said, it's me. I'm the king. And you guys have been messing around long enough. Here's the way it's going to be. Good luck to you. And he would have been righteous in doing so. But he's not just righteous, he is merciful. And so he invades not just the world, not just the city of Jerusalem, but he invades the hearts of people and he changes them. To do what? To make us more like him. That thing that makes you want to wear your favorite player's jersey, superficial and external, but points to something real. You want to be like your king. Your soul's desire is to get rid of the junk we deal with, to get off the throne of our own lives and to follow this king. And he wants to change our hearts. And the word tells us that he, by his spirit, molds us into his image. He is a transformational king. 
And then here's something else to consider that we can see in this text along this same lines. He's, he's a transformational king, but he doesn't just change people. He's changing everything. I mean, think about this just for a minute. These Pharisees are there. And they hear these chants. And the Pharisees that are there, the religious leaders there, they get it. They understand completely what these chants mean. Jesus, tell your people to shut up. Do you understand? They are saying that you're the king, that you're the Messiah. Don't let them say that. Shut them up. And what does he say? If I shut them up, the rocks would start to cry. It's like, you think that my kingship is limited to this little group of people. It's not. My kingship is not limited to Jerusalem. And my kingship is not limited to Israel. I am the king of the earth. Creation points to me. Romans tells us that creation has been subjected to futility because of the sin of men and that it longs for the day that it will be freed from the results or the the effects of the curse because of our sin. Creation itself is being and will be transformed by God. And it's, it's way more personal than just some rocks in Israel. Let, let me share with you this. Are any of you people, animal people in the room? Can you just raise a hand so I'm not alone in this one? We got some animal people in the room. I want you to understand just how significant some of this is. Think about the ecology that we have. Think about this. Let me put it to you this way. Jesus says, hey, go get a colt that's never been ridden before. Bring that here. And that's what I'm going to ride in. Now, let me ask you a question. We got, anybody know anything about horses, donkeys, some of that kind of stuff in here? What happens if you just hop on a colt that's never been ridden before? How does that go? Not to mention, let's ride it down the busiest street in the busiest city at the busiest time of the year with people waving branches around and screaming, let's try that. I dare you to try that at the Pear Blossom. (laughs) It doesn't work, does it? And yet Jesus says, I want that one, the one no one rode, the unbroken one, the unbridled one, bring it here. And he gets on it and it just, it just complies. Look what Isaiah 11 says about the day that Christ returns. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf with the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. That means it's not going to buck, it's not going to fight back, that you could take your three-year-old, give him the reins, and things are fine. None of us would do that if you know anything about horses, Uh, broken or not. He goes on to say, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you want to know why animals buck when we try to ride them? Do you want to know why animals are afraid of you? Why, unless you break them or tame them, they're afraid of you. And then sometimes even then you're just biding time till they snap. Well, George Whitfield, a famous Anglican preacher said that the reason that they're afraid of us like that is because they're smart. Take a look at this quote. George Whitfield said, do you know when you get near animals, why they bark at you and growl at you and scream at you and then run away? They're afraid of you. They do not trust you and do not willingly submit to you because they know you have a quarrel with their master. That's a good quote right there. Say, 
Think about it. When Adam was in the garden, what was one of the first things God has him do? He brings all the animals to him. And he says, name them. Give them names. There was a compliant relationship between man and animal. There was peace there. And, and here in Isaiah, it talks about the fact that, that when Christ comes again, he's going to reestablish his rule and things are all going to go back to that. If you look at Bengal tigers and think those are so beautiful, I want to hug them. Let me urge you, just wait. <laughs> there will come a day, it ain't today. Don't ask Siegfried and Roy, don't do that. But think about it. When Christ, when God, when, when the relationships between man and God were intact in Eden, there was harmony between man and the animal kingdom, the environment as a whole even. There were no thorns before the fall. Everything was compliant. But then when that fractured, everything broke. And there was distrust even to this day. The animal kingdom is not compliant to humans anymore. But here we see this king. The, the man who with his own hands and voice calmed the stormy sea and he takes this, this animal that's unbridled and he gets on it. There's, a, there's this great quote. Any dog people here? If you're a dog person, social media has made us totally intolerable because we just post, I, I post honestly, I, I post more photos of my dog than I do my kids at this point. It's, it's shameful and it's wrong, but I do. This is, this is my dog Asher about a year ago when I got him. And uh, he was just a little puppy. He's a sheep-a-doodle, you know, the doodle thing. That's like, but, but it's not a Labrador. It's a sheep dog. Um, so this is him when I got him. This is what he looks like now, if you want to see the other picture. That, there he is now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my boy. That's my boy. But, but listen, I'm not just using this as an opportunity to show off a picture of my dog, though I am. I'm not just doing that. I want you to hear another C.S. Lewis quote for you. Listen to this. Man with dog closes a gap in the universe. C.S. Lewis said that. Man with dog closes a gap in the universe. What's he talking about there? Tim Keller said it this way. If you've ever gotten yourself into a relationship with an animal, where that animal absolutely and completely trusts you, that relationship is far more satisfying than you will ever be able to explain without theology. If you've ever had that kind of bond between a pet you cannot explain that adequately without theology. How would you? And I talk to my dog like it's a human. That's stupid. My dog kisses me and then licks other things. You know what I mean? Like that's gross. I posted a picture last year of me and my dog sharing an ice cream cone. People lost their minds when they saw that picture, right? How would I explain that ever? What do you mean? How can you have that sort of bond? I could try to say, well, he's my buddy. Yeah, but why would you get that attached? He's only gonna live a few years. Why, why would you get attached to a dog? You have kids at home. What do you do? Why would you do this? And I, I'm gonna have all kinds of repenting to do after this. I just realized I'm, I'm teaching myself into a corner I didn't see on the other end of that, but we'll worry about that later, Brahman. But, but, but here's what I'm saying. What, what Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis and what scripture is telling us, when, if you found that bond, because for animal people, this is real, Okay. If you find that bond with an animal, it's not just about that bond with an animal. It's pointing to something much more significant, and that is that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And you're seeing a little snapshot into what God desires to do with all of creation. And I just think that's cool, don't you? Wouldn't you love 
to be able to go. Like we've gone to Uganda and we've gone and done the wildlife safari or, or the real safaris, not wildlife safari where you're in a bus, but literally we have walked around in the, I don't know what you call, it's not the tundra. I don't know what you call the, the plains in Africa and there's bushes everywhere. And literally in the back of your mind, you're going, okay, they tell you to come in the early morning to see the lions because it's not hot yet. But in the heat of the day, they go into the bushes and we're walking around the bushes. You know what I mean? That's not the way it was designed to be. Christ is not, sometimes our view of the kingdom of God is way too narrow. Like God cares about everything that he's created and he's putting all of it back together. Jesus is the transformational king that is not just gonna reestablish harmony between us and him, but he's gonna reestablish harmony between us and all of creation. It's going to be amazing. Animal people, you're gonna love it. People that can't stand animals, you don't even realize yet how much you're gonna love it. Amen? So he's, he's the real king. He's the transformational king. And whether you know it or not, this is the king you're waiting for. And then finally this, he's the paradoxical king. For those of you taking notes, P-A-R-A-D-O-X-I-C-A-L. He is the paradoxical king. And this is what I mean. Why did the disciples always have such a hard time with his, with, with his prophecies? I mean, a lot of people seem to understand a lot of the prophecies of the Bible. Even these Pharisees here, when he's talking about Messiah, they know what's going on and they're trying to tell him to shut up. Why didn't the disciples get it? Because they were expecting a king that was gonna come in right then and rule. And he keeps talking about death. How do you rule if you're dead? What kind of king comes in to die? What kind of kingdom and movement do we all get behind? I mean, I mean, look, we've even done this with our own political candidates. If their health wanes, we go, we can't vote for him. We'll be in a mess in two years. And, and here's a king saying, I am the ultimate king and I'm coming right now to die. That's a complete and total paradox because we have a king and we are part of a kingdom where that strives to reach the least and the lost. And so Christ himself came to live as us, to experience life as us, and to die for us. You ever think about how so many times we think, I want a leader who understands what it's like to be in my position in life. We want a common man who understands what life's like for the common people and all that. And the reality is, no, we don't. We want a leader that's way better than us, but we want him to understand what we're going through. And that's what this king was. See, the reason that the prophecies talk about Jesus coming the first time, but then there's other prophecies that talk about him coming again is because the first time he came, it was to transform lives, to humble himself, to be like us. And he walked in this paradoxical way where here's the king of all eternity riding a donkey to his death because of us. And then he calls us to be part of a kingdom where the last is first, the least of these is esteemed, the humble are exalted because we are following in the footsteps of the king who went there before us. That's why church leadership doesn't look like a power structure, but it's a servanthood plan. That's why Jesus himself would look at the leaders of the world all around him, the kings and rulers, and he would say, disciples, guys, come here. You see how people rule over everyone? How they just lord over one another? For you, it will not be so. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you will be a slave of all, is what he says. Our king 
is an absolute paradox. He humbled himself for people that were lost. He came to live as us. And listen, we are longing for a king that has established a kingdom built on submission. This is what we've been seeing in Ephesians. This is the kingdom. But it won't always be like that. It's not always gonna be like that. He's not coming on a donkey next time. He's not coming to die next time. And this is where this is important, Heritage. There's, there's two, um, if you will, points of application for us that are really important that we understand. The n- number one is this. Be ready. Know the king is coming. And allow that knowledge to determine how you're preparing for his arrival. The king's coming. His disciples coming in with him, they're ready. They don't fully understand everything, but they're ready and they're celebrating and they're worshiping. But so many people missed it. So many people had no idea who that really was. Can you imagine the God of all the universe came through that gate and they had no idea. They missed it. And church, we need to be ready. Do you ever notice, look at at chapter 19, verse 28, the first The first thing we read in this text, the beginning of the triumphal entry story, it starts with the words, and when he had said these things, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. So the idea is, he's got his guys together, he said some things, and then he said, okay, let's go into Jerusalem, let's do this, get the donkey, and, and that's when that happened. What were the things he said that was the ready break before they went off and did what he came to do? It's the story of the 10 minas when The master gave talents and treasures to his people and he left and went away for a kingdom. And then people rebelled. There were some that said, we will not have that king rule over us. But the king came back. And when he came back, the people that he had ruled all stood before him. And they had to give account for what he had left in their possession. And there was one guy who had 10 treasures, 10 talents, 10 minas, and and the king stands and says, so what, what, what did you do with it? I invested it and I've earned you 10 more. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You will now be in charge of what? 10 cities, he says. And, and to you, how about you? Well, I had five and I invested and I got five back. Well done, good and faithful servant. You had five. How about you? I had one. So I buried it and uh, I have one. And he, he calls him a wicked servant. Did you think I was joking when I said I'd be back? Did you miss when I said, look, you're going to be stewards of what I have that I'm giving you. And I I told you I was coming back. That's the story Jesus tells and then says, so you ready? Let's go. And he goes into the city where the disciples would see all of that play out. They would see people who are ready and celebrating and they would see people who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Church. He's coming. He's the king of all. And whether we choose to allow him to rule and reign over every area of our life or not is irrelevant on the day that he comes. But we will all stand before him. And this is a great reminder for us on this Palm Sunday that what is it that really matters? What are we gonna elevate to the throne of our lives? What's gonna determine how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we serve, who we serve? What's gonna determine that? Is it gonna be me? I don't feel like serving. I don't, I don't wanna minister to those people and I'm tired, I don't wanna do that. And I, I could do that with my money, but I could buy a jersey instead. Or am I gonna allow the Lord to be the Lord 
and to understand that all these things that we have right now, we're just stewards over them anyway. But one day he's coming. It's soon, maybe. It could even be today. But he's coming. Heritage. Be ready. Like, really pray about this. And go, Lord, I believe that you're coming, but how should that affect my life? Because if you really believe that the king of all eternity has called you to be part of his kingdom and that he's coming again, that's got to affect the way that we live our lives. It's got to affect it somewhere. So go before the Lord, I'm begging you, church, and say, Lord, how would you have me be in light of these things? And search the scriptures, because you don't have to wait for a mystical word to come down for you. He wrote it all down. Go to his word and say, Lord, what would you have me do? And may we strive for the well done, good and faithful servant, not the things that just come and go here on earth today, amen? That's for us, church, right? Everybody say it, that's for us. Okay, but the second part of this application is, for lack of a better phrase, it's for them. Because the story closes out with Jesus sitting on a hill, weeping as he looks at this city, thinking about the people that had no idea who he was, that were not ready for him to come, and that did not submit their lives to his rule. He, and he's not angry at them. He's not up there going, you blew it, you blew it. Instead, he's weeping over them. And what's his response to that? I want you to look ahead. I don't want to, I don't want to put a text up for this. I want you to look in the last chapter of the book of Luke. I want you to look at Luke 24. And there's something significant that he says here. In Luke 24, just a couple of pages to your right, starting in verse 44, look what Jesus says to his disciples now, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, right before he ascends into heaven until that day he returns again, he says to them, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything fulfilled about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand scripture. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And then what does it say? Beginning in Jerusalem. Think about that. He's like, okay guys, now let me make sure you understand what has happened here. Why I came. Why I died why I rose again, what all this means, what these scriptures are pointing to, all of this stuff, understand it's all about me. And you need to take these things that you know to the people out there in the world that don't know anything about me. You need to tell them that this stuff is real and I want you to start with the very people that just turned their backs on me and had, that just killed me, much less weren't ready for me the day that I came in. He sends the church for the sake of the people who had no idea who he was or willfully turned their backs on him. History will go on to talk about rabbis that hated him being saved, about leaders who wanted to kill Christians being saved, about people like Jeff Hensley being saved. But he's not done. And so here's why I wanted to talk to us, Heritage. Like we can laugh the CEO thing, it's kind of fun, Christmas, Easter only, like that's kind of funny. But here's the reality of it though, God's given us a gift in that. God's given us a gift in the fact that you can invite all sorts of people to an Easter service that wouldn't come otherwise. 
And so maybe this is an opportunity for us when those people come in the door next Sunday who either don't know anything about Jesus or they don't really take it very seriously. Ah, he's a king. This is just the place I go. I'll check this off my list. It's Easter. It's what you do that don't understand the reality. No, no, no. He's everything you're longing for, whether you know it or not. He desperately loves you. He weeps over the idea of you not being in his kingdom. And he sent us, Heritage Christian Fellowship, and the church globally and historically, specifically to share that good news with people that don't know him. He desperately loves the lost and he wants to save them. And we are plan A. There is no plan B. We are the ones that are sent to show the goodness of Jesus to a world that desperately needs him. They're they're following Kardashians and sports stars and movie stars because they're looking for Jesus, whether they know it or not. So let's take just a moment. I'm I'm gonna ask that you stand with me, if you would. And we're gonna take a moment right now just to pray for our valley, to pray for us that we would be ready for the return of our king, and to pray for the valley and the people around us in our lives, and our offices that don't know Jesus, that have no clue there even is that king. And so, but as I'm doing this, I'm going to be praying, um, uh, I don't know, valley-wide, if you will, but you know specific people, okay? So as we're praying, you don't pray for the valley, you pray for Bill. You pray for Susie. You pray for the people in your life, in your family, in your workplace that do not know Jesus. And you pray that they would open their hearts to the understanding of who he is, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning of who you are, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, we are so thankful for the cross. We're so thankful for the sacrifice. We're so thankful for the proclamation that you showed and revealed to us who you are. And Lord, we're so thankful for the grace and mercy that has opened our eyes to who you are, that we could be called sons of God, that the Lord of Lords is also our joint heir and our friend. What an amazing gift. So Lord, even right now, we thank you for that. And we pray over in our our own lives, Lord. Lord, are there areas of our life that we have not turned over to you? Have we forgotten that you are the king of all, that it's you that we're longing for? Are we returning back to that old nature and looking for hope in things that will never fulfill us? God, may we be found as good and faithful servants, ready for your return. And to that end, Lord, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, take away cancer. Take away, uh, Lord, everything from, from health difficulties, mental illness, unemployment, all of the things, Lord, that, that hamper us and burden us, Lord. But, but thank you, Lord, that those things often point us to what's really important and that it's you. So we pray, Jesus, come quickly. Heal our land. Heal our hearts. And Lord, even in that same way, we pray now, Lord, for those that don't know you. But right now, people in this room are thinking about all sorts of names. It might even be their own. I pray, God, that you would open hearts I pray, God, that that you would, just as you did with Saul, Lord, that you would take down the prideful, that you would tear down our altars and our idols, and may we understand, Lord, who you are. May this valley, Lord, experience such grace this Easter weekend. 
Jesus, may they come to a knowledge of you, that you are our king, that you are our friend, and that you are our savior. And I pray, God, that even in this room and in churches all throughout our valley, Lord, I pray that one week from today, there would be strongholds lying about all over the place, crumbling because your grace has invaded the lives of people that desperately need you. Lord, may the water of the baptismal be empty because it walked out of here on the wet clothes of those who gave their lives to you and were baptized. And Father, may you empower your people so that, Lord, the evangelism that happens isn't just something that was done in a sermon on Sunday, but may that be the culmination of the fact that we allowed you to speak through our lives to our friends, family, and neighbors. So God, empower us because we're scared of that and we're not good at that. But it's your spirit, Lord, that changes lives. And you've spoke through donkeys before. So may you speak through us this week. God, I pray for such grace over this service. And then, Lord, also, not only just over that service, may your grace be upon the lives of everyone here. May you empower us to live for you and your kingdom every day, not just on a holiday. And may you rule and reign over our lives. Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So let's go to work. Let's share the gospel with people. Invite people next week. And listen, sign up, help us minister to people when they come in. I love you guys. Have a great week.